Welcome to Fangphology, a podcast dedicated to obsessively covering the myriad aspects of vampires throughout pop culture. We're your hosts, Kayleigh Donaldson and Catherine Slavova. Lord Byron, the pure poet and great social animal, was one of the leading writers of the Romantic movement and maybe its most notorious. While his poetry remains influential and popular to this day, it is his legend that has taken greater root in the mainstream imagination. He's influenced everything from poetry to cinema to fashion and beyond. He's also a key figure in the evolution of the pop culture vampire myth, and that's what brings us here today. We're diving into the life, death, and undead legacy of Lord Byron. George Gordon Byron, the sixth Baron Byron, was born on the 22nd of January, 1788, the only child of Captain John Byron, known as Jack, and his second wife, Catherine Gordon. Byron's father had previously been somewhat scandalously married to Amelia, the Marchioness of Carmarthen, with whom he'd been having an affair. Their wedding took place mere weeks after her divorce from her first husband, and she was about eight months pregnant at the time. It was not a happy marriage. Their first two children died in infancy, and Amelia passed almost exactly a year after the birth of their third child, Byron's half-sister, Augusta. Jack then married Lord Byron's mother, solely for her vast family fortune. She ended up having to sell her land and title to pay off her new husband's debts. Byron was quickly dumped into a series of private schools where he was prone to violent bouts with classmates and mocked for his deformed foot. It didn't take him long to garner a reputation similar to that of his father, as a man devoid of moderation and traditional morality. Lady Carolyn Lamb, the author with whom Byron had an affair, notoriously described him as mad, bad, and dangerous to know. In her novel Glenavon, her title character, a sleazy rake who corrupts innocent virgins, is a blatant parody of Byron. Even Byron played around with his reputation, describing him as, quote, such a strange melange of good and evil that it would be difficult to describe me. He was tall, handsome, and often very pale and skinny, the latter due to what would now be described as disordered eating. He would binge and purge and engage in rigorous exercise. He was considered to be a pioneering figure in the entire concept of the celebrity. His wife coined the term Byron Mania to describe the furor that surround him, borrowed from the phenomenon of Litzomania. The idea of the Byronic hero comes from our cultural understanding of the mythic Byron. An idealized but flawed figure, an anti-hero with a perfectly tortured soul, a man of passion and rebelliousness, the bad boy with the heart of gold. Byronic heroes are huge in gothic literature and paranormal storytelling, from the Phantom of the Opera to Victor Frankenstein to any number of YA romantic heroes or Game of Thrones characters. The first example, of course, is John Polidori's The Vampire, another character blatantly based on Byron himself. In the summer of 1816, Byron, who had left England and vowed never to return, stayed at the Villa Diodati near Lake Geneva, Switzerland, with a handful of friends. Their numbers included his personal physician, John William Polidori, the poet Percy Bysshe Shelley, his future wife, Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, and Mary's stepsister, Claire Claremont, with whom Byron had already had an affair. 
That year was known as the year without a summer, thanks to the drastic decrease in global temperatures. During their time by Lake Geneva, the incessant rain kept the group indoors, and they turned to reading spooky stories to pass the time. Eventually, they created their own tales. It is from this legendary meeting that Mary Shelley first created the tale of Frankenstein, and Polidori wrote one of the first vampire stories in the English language. The eponymous vampire of Polidori's story is Lord Ruffin, a charming British nobleman who preys upon unsuspecting young maidens throughout his travels. Ruffin's travel companion is a wealthy young orphan named Aubrey, who doesn't suspect a thing until it's far too late. He sees Ruffin die, only to appear a year later with a new identity and an engagement to Aubrey's sister. The story ends with Ruffin escaping, having drained Aubrey's sister of blood on their wedding night. All in all, it's very, well, Byron-esque. Indeed, when the story was first published in April 1819, it was falsely attributed to Byron. It was easy to make the assumption, given that the name Lord Ruffin was already using Caroline Lamb's Glenarvan to describe her own thinly failed takedown on Byron. In her story, however, he's not a vampire. The Byron connection ensured that the story was a big hit for the public, and it laid the groundwork for the modern form of the vampire as an aristocratic figure of elegance and seduction, rather than a mindless monster. During that summer, Byron himself did start writing his own vampire story, and it's from this that many academics believe that Polidori was inspired to write the vampire. Byron never finished the story, which is alternately known as A Fragment or The Burial, A Fragment. Written in epistolary form, much like Dracula and many gothic novels of the era, Byron's story centres on an elderly man named Augustus Darville, with whom the nameless narrator is travelling. They embark on a grand tour of the East, another common activity of the upper classes during this time. The pair arrive in Turkey, and the dying Darville forces the narrator to agree to never reveal his death to anyone, and they make a curious pact. On the ninth day of the month, at noon precisely, what month you please, but this must be the day, you must fling this ring into the salt springs which run into the bay of Eleusis. The day after, at the same hour, you must repair to the ruins of the temple of Ceres and wait one hour. A stork appears in the cemetery with a snake in its mouth, and soon thereafter, Darville dies, his body rapidly decomposing before the narrator's eyes. I was shocked with the sudden certainty which could not be mistaken. His countenance in a few minutes became nearly black. I should have attributed so rapid a change to poison, had I not been aware that he had no opportunity of receiving it unperceived. The narrator then buries Darville's body in the cemetery where he died. The story ends there, and according to Polidori, Byron planned to have Darville repair as a vampire, much like Lord Ruffin, and seduce the narrator's sister. While this fragment of a story was published, it was done so without the approval of Byron, who told the publisher John Murray in an 1820 letter, quote, I shall not allow you to play the tricks you did last year with the prose you postscribed to Mitzepa, which I sent to you not to be published, if not in a periodical paper. And there you tacked it, without a word of explanation, and be damned to you. Even without the publishing drama, Byron had grown tired of the story, and of vampires in general. In a letter dated 27th of April, 1819, he wrote, I have besides a personal dislike to vampires, and the little acquaintance I have with them would by no means induce me to reveal their secrets. Outside of his literary influence, the pure image of Lord Byron as a charming yet menacing social figure, a disruptor of the upper classes which she inhibited, helped to not only bolster his own reputation, but to strengthen the cultural tropes of the vampire that remain in place to this day. Byron was, 
according to literary scholars and historians, a spooky little bastard. As a child, he loved to lie around in graveyards. He later found a skull in Newstead Abbey and, of course, chose to use it as a cup for drinking. Bored with university, he wrote, I have become idle and conceited, from scribbling rhyme to making love to women. While at Trinity College, Cambridge, he kept a pet bear in his room because the regulations said he couldn't keep a dog, but there were no rules about bears. Later in life, he had a veritable menagerie of animals, including dogs, cats, monkeys, horses, and an eagle. But it was his relationships that made him a figure of societal scandal. He reportedly had numerous sexual relations with men, including classmates at Harrow. His affair with Carolyn Lamb was highly publicised, as was her increasingly messy attempts to get back with him when they split. After he spurred her at Lady Heathcote's ball in early July 1813, Carolyn reportedly tried to slash her wrists with a broken wine glass. As well as her scathing novel Glenarvan, to which Byron responded by saying, God damn! Lamb impersonated Byron in letters to his publisher and mocked him in poems written under his name. He fathered possibly three daughters with three different women, including Ava Lovelace, the mathematician who would help create the analytical engine, a predecessor to modern computers. One of his rumoured children was through a relationship with his half-sister Augusta Lee. Their closeness as adults led many to speculate that they were incestuous, further evidence of Byron's shocking deviance. A few days after the birth of Elizabeth Medora Lee in 1814, Byron went to visit his half-sister and her child. He later wrote in a letter to his confidant, Lady Melbourne, Oh, but it is worthwhile. I can tell you why, and it is not an ape. And if it is, that must be my fault. However, I will positively reform. You must, however, allow that it is utterly impossible I can ever be half so well-liked elsewhere, and I have been all my life trying to make someone love me, and never got the sort I preferred before. Historians believe that the use of the term ape was an allusion to possible deformities that a child born from incest would have, and this letter is widely cited as proof of Byron's parentage of Elizabeth. His third child was by Claire Claremont, the previously mentioned stepsister to Mary Shelley. It's unknown whether Claremont knew she was pregnant when she convinced her stepsister and stepbrother-in-law to go to Geneva, but no doubt it became obvious during her time there. Having knocked up a teenager ten years his junior, of course, Byron proceeded to ignore Claremont's pleas and letters for help. It was only sometime after their child's birth that he became involved, taking custody from the struggling and impoverished Claire on conditions such as a change of name, from Alba to Allegra, that Claremont keep her distance from the child. After a short life of being shuffled around various families before being sent away to an Italian convent for education, Allegra died at the age of five. Claremont would blame Byron for this for the rest of her life. As he had done with her mother, Byron ignored Allegra's letters and refused to visit her in that last year of her life. As he himself would comment, he cared more for Allegra after she was gone than any time he would have been with her. Charming. If you haven't already determined, Byron's relationships were, at best, rather toxic. When people no longer held Byron's interest or fulfilled their use, they were often discarded, a trait carried through to Lord Ruthven in the fates that befall Aubrey, Ianthe, and Aubrey's sister, and were no doubt inspired by Polidori's own experiences with Byron. Polidori entered Byron's service as his personal physician in 1816, 
having only just received his degree as a doctor of medicine the previous year. Not long after, he would accompany Byron on his tour of Europe, one that would include the infamous night of ghost stories in Geneva. As drama was a given when it came to Byron, publisher John Murray, who was, remember, also Byron's publisher, offered Polidori the impressive sum of 500 English pounds to keep a diary of their travels. Today, that would be the equivalent of roughly 50,000 pounds. While the version that exists today is an edited one, it was transcribed by Polidori's sister, who in her words cut out the most piquant, sinful passages, as it describes a fraught relationship between Polidori and Byron, the former jealous and the latter dismissive. To Byron and Percy Shelley, Polidori was the annoying tag-along kid. Polidori was much closer to Mary, who was referred to in the diary as Mrs. Shelley, despite not actually having married Percy at that time. They talked of madness, patient confidentiality, ghost stories, and other things. Polidori even took Mary's young son for his vaccinations. After his dismissal from Byron's service, Polidori spent time in Italy before returning to England. It was there, in 1819, that The Vampire would be published, without Polidori's permission. Worse, it had been attributed to Byron, and despite great pains on the part of both to correct this, letters to publishers and magazines, and Byron publishing his own fragment, it continued to be attributed to Byron. And when he attempted to claim his part of the profits, Polidori was offered a paltry £30, 10% of what he believed he was own. Two years later, Polidori would be dead at the age of just 25. His official cause of death was given as died by the visitation of God. But it was commonly accepted by those around him that, drowning in depression and gambling debts, he had taken a fatal dose of prussic acid. He would be buried in the yard of St Pancras Old Church, where just a few years earlier his friends Mary and Percy would meet over their mother's grave. Today his grave is lost, the marker one of many moved to surround the famous hardy tree. It's a sad yet apt metaphor. Despite his influence on the world of vampire fiction, Polidori's story is just lost, one of many that are the same in shape and form. Polidori was the first of the Geneva writers to die. Percy Shelley would drown 11 months later. What was Byron doing? What Byron seemed to be doing best, fucking around Europe. In 1823, he left Genoa, Italy, leaving behind his weeping, married 22-year-old mistress, but taking along her brother as his new sidekick. And he headed for Greece to take part in the battle for Greece's independence from the Ottoman Empire. There he spent a lot of time sorting out back pay for the soldiers, bribing enemy soldiers who had also not been paid to surrender to token resistance, being the money guy in general and dealing with the bumbling antics of his sidekick. He adopted a nine-year-old Muslim girl and sent her away to safety, and romantically pursued yet another teenager. The boy, Byron's Greek page, allowed Byron to spoil him with exorbitant amounts of money and poems written about him, but never returned to his romantic advances. Byron would meet his end in 1824, not in some glorious battle, but in the sickbed. He had planned to take part in an attack on a Turkish-held fortress, leading a group of men despite having no practical experience as a general but he took ill before they were sent to sail to the Gulf of Corinth. Bloodletting did the opposite of helping. Surprise, surprise. And after catching another cold, Byron deteriorated, developed a high fever, and expired. Unlike Lord Ruffin, he would not reappear back in England ready to cause more chaos. But his legend lived on. The Greeks mourned Lord Byron deeply, and he became a hero. His supporters wanted him to be buried in the country. Today a suburb in the Greek capital of Athens is named Veronis in his honour, 
When his body was returned to the UK, huge crowds wait to view his body as he lay in state for two days in Westminster. Byron's friends raised a sum of £1,000 to commission a statue of the writer, but it took several years before they could find an institution willing to house it. It's now in the library of Trinity College, Cambridge. Byron's status as the first modern-style celebrity remains a potent force in contemporary pop culture, as does the Byronic hero of many a film, novel, and rock star's persona. We could be here all day listing the characters influenced, directly or otherwise, by Byron and our critical understanding of his image. Hell, we could be here a long time just discussing the vampires with Byron's influence looming overhead. We'll keep it brief, we promise. Horror scholar Nina Auerbach compared Byron and Polidori's relationship to that of Louis and Lestat in Anne Rice's Vampire Chronicles, writing, The fraught menage of Louis and Lestat is a return to vampire beginnings. Their irritable, mutual obsession recovers literary vampire's lost origin, the homoerotic bond between Byron and Polidori. Rice, of course, helped to hugely rewrite the cultural image of the vampire with her Vampire Chronicles, but her roots are evidently those of the Byronesque. Granted, her creations tend to be far more sympathetic than Lord Ruthven is in Polidori's story, and typically more likeable than Byron himself reportedly was in real life. Still, that trope of the sympathetic but morally grey vampire, troubled by one's own deviance, but unwilling or unable to stop, is very much cut from the same cloth as the Byronesque. You'd be hard-pressed to find a major pop culture vampire of the past 50 years who wasn't at least a little bit Byronesque. Edward Cullen, Angel and Spike from Buffy, Dracula is reimagined by Francis Ford Coppola, Damon Salvatore from The Vampire Diaries, Graf von Krolloch, Dracula and Dracula Untold, Dr. Jonathan Reed from Vampire, and multiple incarnations of Castlevania's Dracula. These days, you're more likely to see a Byronic Dracula in any adaptation than one actually resembling the character as written by Bram Stoker. While in the original he's a character that only exists in the point of view of other characters, his words only repeated by the narrators and thus never heard firsthand, transforming him into the focal character, regardless of being villain, anti-villain, or anti-hero, seems to go hand in hand with the Byronic. It's another feedback loop that rewrites the character in the public consciousness. There's a reason you typically see Dracula on screen as a tortured hot guy than the conniving warlord with a very large moustache, as he is in the novel. It should come as absolutely no surprise that both Byron and Ruffin have been repurposed by modern authors. Both are notable, complicated, dramatic figures, free from pesky things such as being under copyright. In Jane Bites Back, Michael Thomas Ford's novel about a vampiric Jane Austen in the modern era, Lord Byron plays the role of villain and literary rival. Meanwhile, over in Kim Newman's Anno Dracula universe, Ruffin is one of the many literary vampires on the scene. Where Dracula, married to the widowed Queen Victoria, rules as Prince Consort, Ruffin serves as a Conservative Prime Minister for nearly 60 years, finally ousted by Winston Churchill in 1940. After reclaiming the position, only to lose it again to Winston Churchill, Ruffin serves as Home Secretary under Margaret Thatcher. Curiously, Lord Byron is not one of the many historical figures reimagined as a vampire in the tabletop world of darkness setting. While various source books and stories feature the likes of Al Capone, Harry Houdini, Nefertiti and Louis Pasteur as just some of the real-world figures of the undead, Lord Byron only gets a few scant mentions over in the mage section of the world of darkness. Instead, it's Ruffin who has a role in this vampire world, as the sire of a prestigious line of vampires all bearing the same surname. One of that line, or perhaps Lord Ruffin himself, it's one of those in-universe mysteries, would become the sire of Vlad Tepish. When Dracula captured him, Lambach was offered a choice. Make Dracula a vampire, 
or die. Let us finish this episode with not a quote from Byron, but instead from Polidori, who in his life and after has been too often left out in the vampire legend of his own making. In an excerpt from a letter to the editor of the Morning Chronicle, whom Polidori had previously written to assert that he was the author of the vampire and not Byron, noted that Lord Byron, quote, knew nothing of the vampire story and hated vampires. Thank you for listening to Fangthology. This episode was written, edited, and narrated by Kaylee Donaldson and Catherine Slavova. More information and links to our research can be found at our website, fangthology.com. For bite-sized trivia and miscellany, check out our Twitter and Instagram accounts, also by the name of Fangthology. Please like, share, and review us wherever you subscribe to podcasts, and we'll see you in our next episode.